You're listening to Standing Before the Mast podcast with Chris Heaton, sponsored by Newport Nautical Supply. Welcome, folks. My guest for this episode is Charlie Doan, sailor and sailing journalist. Charlie is currently the cruising editor for Sail Magazine, where he also has a column. He's been writing professionally since 1986. He's the author of a couple of books, The Modern Cruising Sailboat and The Sea is Not Full, Ocean Sailing Revelations and Misadventures. He's currently working on a new book, a nonfiction biography about Thomas Tangevold, son of Peter Tangevold, the well-known blue water sailor who wrote At Any Cost, Love, Life, and Death at Sea. Charlie gives us a bit of a teaser into the fascinating and tragic story of Thomas Tangevold's life that he's working on. I really look forward to when this book comes out, and he's currently looking to get it published. We start off by talking about some of his early seafaring experiences and boating and how his environment shaped the type of boating he did. He's owned four significant boats, Crazy Horse, a Pearson Allberg 35 yawl, Selfie, a Golden Hind 31, and two Lunacies. The first was a Tanton 39-foot cutter, and his current boat, the second Lunacy, is a Boreal 47. Charlie has sailed over 100,000 miles offshore, completed seven transatlantic passages, and single-handed between the West Indies, Bermuda, and New England. I had a great time catching up with Charlie. He was at his home office in New Hampshire, and I was here in Newport. You can learn more about Charlie and even interact on some topics on his website, wavetrain.net. That's W-A-V-E-T-R-A-I-N.net. And I imagine you'll also be able to keep tabs on when his latest book is published. I hope you enjoy. Okay, I'm all yours. Good, how are you? I'm fine. You're in New Hampshire? I am in New Hampshire. This is my home office in New Hampshire. Excellent. Is this audio clear enough for your purposes? Yes, it is, yes. I don't have a fancy microphone like you have there. Oh, that's that's fine. You've been a writer for a long time. Yes. Um, I'd like to talk about you. How you first, what was your first seafaring experience? How did you first get into boating? We moved around a lot when uh, I was growing up, um, like all over the world, really. My dad worked for an oil, for an oil company when I was young. And um, the one fixed point in my geographic universe was this island on the coast of Maine where my mom had been raised by uh, her mom. And uh, it's like a real island. You needed boats to get to it. And so from a very early age, you know, I don't remember learning to row a boat, for instance. It was seemed perfectly self-evident and was running outboard skiffs when I was young and got interested in sailboats myself and taught myself to sail in uh, little styrofoam sea snarks. I, I, I bought the first one through uh, a magazine ad and taught myself how to use it. And my interest in sailing, um, and as to the writing angle, my interest in sailing was originally kindled by things I had read, books Mm. I read. Was your first boat Crazy Horse, or did you, uh, well, other than the... Yeah, my first serious boat, my first serious boat, the first boat I did any blue water sailing on um, that belonged to me was Crazy Horse, yeah. Allberg, Pearson Allberg 35, y'all, built in 1964. And you, you traveled some miles in that, didn't you? I did. I yeah. sailed to West Africa and back on that boat over a period of a bit more than two years. I had a vague recollection of shipping a box of rigging to Gambia. To Gambia. To Gambia. That, was that me? 
Um, I spoke with your dad, Bud. Mm. I called him. I think I just I wrote about that for Sale Magazine and then some time ago repurposed what I wrote as a blog post. Mm. Described that whole adventure. It was, um, it, things were very different, you know, b prior to the internet. Mm. Uh, I had taken the, I, I, um, I needed to replace all my shrouds. I found all these cracks in my swage fittings, uh, deck level. Um, in the Gambia River in Gambia outside Banjul. And I took all the shrouds off one at a time and took them ashore and measured them to get dimensions. And then called up your dad and, and asked if he could, you know, put together a box of replacement shrouds for me. Um, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if you were involved in that effort. Yeah. Well, I remember I, the physical act of boxing it up. The, the rigging was performed by a professional rigger that we yeah. work with. And uh, I remember we gritted our teeth, uh, hoping that those measurements were right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was gritting my teeth too. But the, the funny part was like the, the whole process of, because uh, there was like one payphone in Banjul. Mm -hmm. um, I described this in the blog post. And I, I so... I got my measurement. Well, first I called to see if it was possible, you know, like whether you guys could do it for me. And he said, yeah, give me the dimensions. And so I went back and measured and came back and used the payphone again. But this is the only payphone in this city hmm. long before there were anything like mobile phones, at least in West Africa. And um, these were fairly long conversations. And I was using a ATT calling card and these long lines of people would form behind me waiting to use the <laughs> phone and start muttering amongst themselves well why is he talking on this phone for so long how can he afford this and I said over my shoulder I have a free number which is what they call the calling card numbers and they oh he has a free number how do we get a free number <laughs> like every time I used the phone these riots would almost break out oh boy the inequity of the situation and then when the shrouds finally arrived, they were, um, you guys had put the true value of the package um, on the customs declaration. And mm -hmm. in Gambia, it was a huge amount of money. I think it was like $1,400 or something. And customs held it up and wanted to get bribed before they'd release it. Oh my God. And so when I went to DHL to collect the package, they said, we can't give it to you until you give us money to dash customs <laughs> and customs wanted $50 to release the package. Huh. Um, and this is how everything worked in Gambia. You know, you pay dash to the government to mm. get anything done. And so I went downtown to change money to get $50 in, in Delasi, the local currency, which is about 500 Delasi 50. It was 10 to one more or less, 500 Delasi I needed. Um, you got a much better rate on the black market than from the bank. So I went to down to the marketplace and found some money changers, but I needed three guys to get that much money. I had to form a syndicate <laughs> <laughs> to change $50. And um, then went back with this paper bag full of cash to the DHL office. And there was a, the manager of the place was, and, he, and I said, I've come to get my package. Um, I, have, I have the money to dash customs. And he said, oh, I'll talk to them, keep the money. And handed oh. me the package. So after all that, you got to keep your money. So after all that, I got to keep the money and then had to figure out a way to spend it before leaving town. 
had customs actually broken into the package or did they just go by the declaration on the they just went by the declaration mm. and as the dhl guy explained to me that people never put the true values on their packages huh. and, um and i and i hadn't thought and i wouldn't have expected you guys to lie in the mm. customs declaration from our end we probably did it from a, a value of insurance with dhl so if it got lost you know, we could claim against it and I yeah. we did it for that reason. Oh, that's, that's a great story. Your next boat was Sophia. I'm not familiar with this boat, a golden hind. Uh, Sophie, a golden hind 31. Yeah. yeah. Where's that built? Uh, that was built in the UK designed by a man named Maurice Griffiths, mm -hmm. who was for many, many, many decades, really, editor-in-chief of Yachting Monthly in the UK. Mm -hmm. Was also like an amateur yacht designer. Um, sailed on the East, and he wrote one book in particular that is kind of a classic, um, if you're an aficionado of cruising literature, uh, The Magic of the Swatchways, which is oh. well known to every sailor in the United Kingdom, but isn't well known over here in the US. What was it called again? I'll have to look uh, The Magic of the Swatchways. Hmm. Great book. Yeah. And it's... Um, his story is interesting in that he, he really enjoyed coastal cruising in mm -hmm. his little particular niche of the world. And he married a woman who was very interested in blue water cruising. And they ultimately got divorced because they enjoyed these different sorts of sailing. And he designed boats for um, basically cruising in the east coast of England, shallow draft, um, you know, boats that could boats mm. that could dry out for the most right. part. So the Golden Hind 31 was a full keel boat, originally designed to be built in plywood. They made a mold for the hull so it could be built in glass at some point in the 1970s. I think the original design probably dates maybe to the 30s or the 40s. For many years, the hulls were built in glass with, uh, ply with wood decks and houses and um, Full keel with twin bilge keels on other either side of that full keel, so you had in effect mm. three keels. Very narrow boat, hard chined hull because it originally designed to be built in plywood, you know, so simple easily. It was a bit tender, but all those keels gave it tremendous directional stability. It really did not like to change direction, so you could. It was a great boat to single hand because <laughs> you could walk away from the helm. Nothing you know, would happen. And, and nothing would happen for a while. You know, you could make a trip to the bow and back and the boat wouldn't go more than 10 degrees off course. What was the rig configuration? Was it a sloop? The one I bought, um, I bought in Rockland, Maine, and it had, it had a sloop rig on it mm -hmm. with a um, very short mast. And I re-rigged it, put on a taller mast um, and a bowsprit and re-rigged it as a cutter with a lot mm -hmm. more sail area. And there had been a number of people who, who had put taller rigs on these boats. And at that time, there was a builder who had gotten the molds who was building new ones with taller rigs on them. So I had, you know, I, this wasn't a total stab in the dark, putting a taller mast on this boat. Did you sail a lot of miles on that boat? No, I never, I never went offshore on that boat. Hmm. Uh, I just cruised the coast of Maine on that boat. There, a lot of people did sail those boats transatlantic. There was a time when the Golden Hind 31 was the 
more transatlantics had been done in in that make and model with both than any other. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. As late as I'm going to say the early 90s, that was true. Wow. Or mid 90s. I don't know what's going on with them now. They were in production up until about 10 years ago. Yeah, I'll do some more research on that. And then we get to the the lunacies. <laughs> the lunacies. Uh, the first one, that um, Canton design, um, the 39-foot cutter, I believe he designed the boat that does head, head boat charters out of Newport called uh, Sight Sailor. Yeah, he did. That's mm. his book. He's a great designer. He was one of a triumvirate of designers who came up in Dick Carter's office. Dick Carter was a really successful IOR, IOR designer, you know, mm -hmm. designer in the IOR era. Um, there's been uh, uh, a book recently published by Seapoint Books. Dick Carter tells this, it's an amazing story. He, he, he rose very quickly and had good instinctive sense of boat design, but didn't draw, you know, he wasn't a trained designer. Mm -hmm. And hired three young guys to do all the grunt work for him. <laughs> and they were Chuck Payne, Bob Perry, and Eve Marie Tanton. Oh, boy. And Chuck Payne and, and Bob Perry, you know, right. um, had a great deal of success designing production boats. And Eve Marie had a much more eclectic career. Um, but he, he just as talented, if not more so, than uh, Chuck and Bob. The first lunacy was an aluminum... The original design was uh, for a 37-foot boat mm -hmm. with a cat catch rig. And there were six hulls built in Kingston, Ontario. And the boat I had was the only one built with a transom scoop, which is how it became a 39-foot boat rather than a 37-foot boat, and was the only one built with a to receive a conventional cutter rig. Oh, so you didn't go with the cat catch rig? No. no. The other five boats have cat catch rigs. Hmm. And I, I've been in contact with the, um, you know, unstayed cat catch rigs. That was right. what Eve Marie originally had in mind. I saw a picture on your website. It, you look like you you did a English style haul out and clean up yeah, <laughs> with the, your current boat. Yeah, like like the Golden Hind, it also can dry out, um, hmm. but it, it's much easier. The thing about the Golden Hind was getting in between those bilge keels and the central keel. Yeah. To do any work on the hull was a, it was just a terrible place to be, working, you know, scraping bottom paint and and you know grinding paint off of the steel bilge you know bilge keels or mm. it was just horrible. Yeah, the current boat is um, yeah much much larger, forty seven feet and centerboard boat and can can easily dry out of the water. You know, you can beach it and dry out of the water. Mm. Um, which the first lunacy could not do. She's a conventional fin keeled boat. Just looking at your website and you've sailed 100,000 miles offshore, seven transatlantic passages and multiple single-handed passages between the West Indies, Bermuda and New England. Of all the boats you've had, which, uh, which one was the most memorable or provided the best passages? Let's, I, you know, both the lunacies were great offshore boats. Mm. The old Lunacy, the 37-footer, was a much easier boat to single hand than the current one. Um, the current one, because it's, you know, you feel more secure on it. It's 10 mm. feet longer, on eight feet longer, and um, has a um, very smooth motion for a monohull. 
the ballast is in the hull rather down in the keel and all the weights really efficiently centralized it's fairly wide mm -hmm. uh, so there's a lot of initial stability uh, just and it's very smooth motion all those french centerboard boats Ali, alabats garcias in my mm -hmm. experience have um excellent motions in a seaway have you written two books or three uh, i've written two i'm working on a third Okay, because I found another one, I think on Amazon, it suggested um, you've written The Modern Cruising Sailboat, The Sea is Not Full, and then there was another book that popped up as a suggestion called The Handbook of Offshore Cruising with Jim Howard under the, the Sail Magazine banner. Oh, uh, yeah, that's a book I majorly revised. Oh, I, okay. I wrote a lot of revisions. Um, that was published by Sheridan House, and um, Jim Roberts, was that the author's name? Uh, Jim Howard, it Jim said. Jim Howard. Yeah, so Jim Howard was a cruiser who wrote that book and published it with um, Sheridan House. And Sheridan House wanted to update it, but could not find Jim Howard. <laughs> <laughs> because he was off cruising somewhere. <laughs> Good for him. And, and asked me to uh, help them revise it. So, um, Are you still affiliated with Sail Magazine? I'm still affiliated with Sail Magazine. I'm on their masthead as uh, the cruising editor. And mm -hmm. I still write features for them occasionally. Up until this year, I was actively working in their Best Boats program and their Freeman K. Pittman Innovation program. And I still write the column on the back page of the magazine. Right. Whenever. Yeah, that's the one I'm familiar with. Yeah. Do you find writing for, you mentioned it on your website, that sometimes it can be stifling writing for a, a mainstream publication and you're your blog gives a lot more freedom. Yeah, one of the biggest restrictions you have writing for a magazine is just length. Mm. And when I was editing copy for magazines, which I did for many years, um, that was always your first, you know, you have so much space. The amount of space you have to fit a story into, an article into is fixed and you have to make the article fit and along with the art, so, and, as magazines have evolved during my lifetime, the amount of space allotted to stories gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Mm. With a blog post, you know, you can go on as long as you want. And, um, and you can also use language editors don't want you to use in boat magazines. And, and you're not as, you don't feel as tightly constrained by the advertising relationships that, that magazines develop with their advertisers. Right. Now, am I correct? You've also worked with Cruising World, Offshore, Ocean Navigator, Blue Water Sailing, Sailing, The New York Times. I, had, I only had one article in The New York Times. Oh, okay. But it, it was... It was worthy uh, of mention. Yeah, 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 yeah. You got to put that on your clip list. <laughs> the, the three magazines I worked as staff members on were New England Offshore. I ran the editorial department for that, which was consisted of me and one other guy. Mm. Um, and um, plus a proofreader, Cruising World and Sail. Mm. I didn't work for Cruising World for too long. No. Yeah, a lot of the publications are much, like you said, much smaller now. And I, I, I pretty much interact all online, so. The internet has defunded the magazine industry. No mm. doubt about it. Um, I mean, there are some, there are some of the smaller independent magazines. Mm -hmm. 
are, are pretty healthy, but for, you know, the major national magazines to survive with corporate owners, you know, it's constrained them a good deal, unfortunately. One of the things that there was a surprise fact that popped up when I was reviewing your website, you were talking about the Bermuda, the Hinkley Bermuda 40, and it, it's the longest production run enjoyed by any fiberglass auxiliary sailboat anywhere in the world, 1959 through 1991, uh, you know, across all models. I didn't realize that. Yeah, I don't remember where I picked up that fact. Because if, you'd, if someone had ever said, that's you a, know. That's, that's a really long run. It is. Uh, for one model. Yeah. I would have thought it would have been something else, you know, perhaps something more more production focused, you know, like a hunter or a Catalina or something, but yeah, you think but about it. Yeah. None of those boats ran for decades though. Mm -mm. It's, you know, increasingly the model on boat builders is more like the car industry. You need to like change things up. Um, you know, you don't try to come up with a model that you can sell the same boat for decades. You come up with a new model that you sell as your mm. model for a few years and then you, then you put out another one, you know, a new and improved version. I thought that was interesting because it sparked quite a bit of conversation on your blog. Uh, a lot of people were interested yeah. in it. And you it's, cheekily referred to it as the wet dream boat for some people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. When, when I was young, you know, that was, you, you, you'd go, oh, man, if only I could have one of those. Yeah, for a long time. You know, and Hinkley barely builds boats anymore, much less sailboats. But the thing what and i think that boat's a good example you want a, a hinkley bermuda 40 now hmm. and buy a new one and there i think there are a number of people still want them because all the old ones are so well maintained right um you go to the brokerage market that's true of a large number of boats i think the the thing about the fiberglass boat building industry you end up competing with all the boats you built before because they are very long lived mm -hmm. if they're taken care of and they're much less expensive to buy than new boats. Yeah. Do you cover gear or just boats when, when you've gone to a boat show? Um, gear and gear. boats. Yeah. yeah. Do you ever walk the aisles and, and look at some new products that are supposed to solve a problem and scratch your head? Uh, oh yeah. All the time. <laughs> <laughs> Right. I used to have, created I, a problem to be solved. You say, oh, I, I, I never thought of having that problem. <laughs> one of the things we, we sometimes say, and I picked this up from my wife, who's British, uh, when a salesman comes in and shows you some latest thing and he's got a, a glossy brochure and he wants you to get it on the retail shelf, we look at him and say, is it necessary? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which doesn't always go over well, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's always the first question I ask myself. Do I need this? Yeah. And usually the answer is no. One of the things that I've talked about with other guests is the technology that gets pushed uh, at the America's Cup level or other high-tech sailing levels sometimes and ultimately tricks, trickles down to the rest of us, to people with regular boats or production boats. And we saw that briefly, I think, around the late, mid to late 80s after the 83 America's Cup with that famous wing keel, a couple yeah. of production builders sort of had one or, you know, they could, they could achieve a bit of shoal draft by making this funky wing keel. But that, that kind of went away. Do you think in five, 10 years time, we'll be all foiling around the bay? 
nah, I don't think we will be flying around the bay. And yeah, no, there, uh, there's always been a lot of trickle down from high end racing and the America's Cup to the rest of the industry in the past. Mm. Um, the wing keel is a good example. I was working for offshore and test sailing boats for offshore when the wing keeled boats started, you know, the wing keeled cruising boats mm-hmm. started coming out and, and quickly people quickly realized those keels didn't work particularly well on cruising boats because when you ran aground, it was <laughs> very hard to get off. Oh. Um, cause you couldn't heal the boat. Right. Heal the boat to get off. Cause you had this like flat surface at the, or you know, largely hard, largely horizontal surface at the bottom of your keel. And all that extra area would like, you know, the mud would hold Suck on. Suck it. it. Yeah. 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 It would hold on to it much better than just a regular fin keel. But as far as foiling goes, um, it's, it's, it's so amazing. I've, I've been watching videos of the current generation of the Amoka 60s that are going to go out in the Vendée Globe. And mm. you see, you know, these are boats that are designed to sail around the world nonstop. And you see them, you know, hulls out of the water flying on these, on these keels. And it's just phenomenal. Um, and I, I find it a fascinating development, but I don't see it yeah. coming down to boats you and I are going to sail cruising around. I, I suppose in a, in a controlled environment that is the America's Cup course, it's not really a concern. But as somebody who sailed offshore between here and Bermuda and had a collision with a, a large timber in the water, didn't do any damage, didn't sacrifice the trip. I always wonder what it would be like if you were screaming along at 20-something knots with only a foil in the water and it, it, it caught something partially submerged. Um, yeah. It, it would be they, rather catastrophic, I imagine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you, you'd have, it would be a lot different from just banging something with a hull. Um, yeah. well, you'll rip the foil off, you'll have a dramatic crash and you'll rip the foil off. And, and if it was an animal you hit, you may have killed it. I mean, you know, whale strikes are pretty common on these. Yeah, you um, just wrote about that. Um, yeah. Killer whales. Oh, no, I'm just talking oh, about uh, whale strikes. Oh, whale strikes. Uh, Amoka 60s hitting whales during their, you know, the various events they run. Mm. Um, yeah, no, I, and I did write a post about um, killer whales seeming to, they're, they're, it seems like they're engaging in, in coordinated attacks against cruising boats. <laughs> <laughs> They've had it with us, man. Right. <laughs> they're starting to organize. The other thing I, I had to laugh, I was just perusing your, your uh, blog, and one topic that stood out was uh, about harnesses and in our store, of course, you know, we take used gear in on consignment and we actually stopped taking Laraca's harnesses in because when we got to the fourth large plastic tub filled with Laraca's harnesses, we said, we've got too many. <laughs> oh, do you still have them? Oh, I've got at least two tubs full. Um, I got to come. I got to come see you guys. They're used the and well, they say they're used. They're, they're, they look like they're in immaculate condition and people bring them in because they've upgraded to the latest greatest inflatable with a with a harness and, and all that and i just use the laracus uh, when i'm on board my wife doesn't swim so i i just use it so i'm attached to the boat and i'm really worried about it. but i did think about that what if i went over and the thing inflated <laughs> and i was being dragged along so the um, laracus takes that out yeah First of all, I don't really wear a harness, except if I'm feeling, you know, the conditions are strong enough that I 
I'm getting nervous about it. Mm. Um, you got to stay on the boat. Right. Um, the the book I'm working on now involves a character who sailed for years and who who never had lifelines on his boat, um, and never wore a harness. And it was, you know, his attitude wasn't. A lot of people will tell you this. If you're out of your your state of mind has to be if you fall off the boat you're probably dead right so you want to do everything you can to stay on the boat i emphasize you know when i have crews on my boat i emphasize and this is an easy thing to do when you move around on deck you have to focus on the moving mm -hmm. it's when it's really easy to get lost in a state of mind where something needs doing on the bow and you want to do it quickly and you rush forward and you're thinking about what you're going to do when you get to the bow and you're not thinking at all about how you're moving to the bow. Mm -hmm. um, and you just have to slow down, take one thing at a time, live in the moment and say, okay, now I'm placing my hand here, you know, and focus on how you're moving around the boat as you move around the boat. Um, and um, once you get into that habit, I think it becomes very hard to fall overboard. Yeah. So I carry, I have a couple of old Laracus harnesses. They're not big enough to, which is why I want to come look in that barrel of yours. They're not big enough to fit over a bulky jacket, but mm -hmm. if, it, you know, I'm, I'm wearing something light and I have some inflatable, some nice inflatable harnesses. It's it tend to be, if you have crew on board, some, some people want to wear a harness all the time. And if they want to do that, that's fine. Mm -hmm. And they prefer the inflatable harnesses. Um, but as you say, I think about getting dragged along at the end of a tether with an inflated, you know, balloon around your chest yeah. as, as being like, you know, not necessarily a good situation. And, and um, I think people have died being dragged behind boats. I was on a boat once where a crew member, our bowman, this is on a Sydney Hobart, during a Sydney Hobart race, was wearing an inflatable under his foul <laughs> weather jacket. And he's up on the bow and it was, you know, automatic inflatable. Mm. He was up on the bow and it got buried in a wave up there. <laughs> and the jacket inflated under his, the life jacket inflated under his, his foul weather jacket. Sure. And he came back, he whipped out his rigging knife and was stabbing himself <laughs> in the chest to deflate the... <laughs> the life jacket because he he was suffocating he couldn't breathe oh. um, and we go oh look look norman's coming back from the bow stabbing himself in the chest <laughs> yeah that's it that's a tough look to recover from yeah. with any dignity anyway <laughs> i i spoke with two other people on different podcasts and both of them had this had gone over the side of a boat one she went over to retrieve a a ring that was in a box still floating and a marriage proposal that had a hiccup and the boat was barely moving. That's a good story. Yeah. It was Kim Hapgood. It was an early episode uh, and they were down in the islands and she successfully recovered it because it was floating in the box. And even though the boat was barely moving at two or three knots, she was surprised at how quickly it got away from her and, yeah. and or the perception. And then the second one was, uh, Anna Vanderwall was telling me about a photo shoot he did where he was in shallow water 
I think the, the shot was half out of the water, half below the water, and the boat would sail up and sail back to him. And he was amazed at how quickly the thing disappeared. Yeah. Yeah, but as a counterpoint to those two anecdotes, the one time I saw somebody go overboard was um, during a race, around the buoys race in Sardinia, a swan event. It was um, crewing on, on someone's boat and saw the boat just to leeward of us. A crew member, uh, this is, you know, maybe a 60-something foot swan, modern swan, a crew member forward went overboard off the windward side of the boat. This was on a beat. And um, another crew member aft, it was the most subtle and unremarkable thing you'd, and, and you think like, wow, that was actually really impressive. A crew member aft just like reached down and picked this guy up <laughs> and hauled him back on the boat um, oh once, he got to the once he got to the transom. Wow. Oh, smooth as glass, smooth as silk. It was really impressive. And he was able to pull the whole yeah, weight together. Like nothing had happened. Obviously, you should not count on that happening. <laughs> no, no. I think he'd done this before. <laughs> what, uh, what are your future sailing plans in, or current? Um, nah, I'm just um, taking the, I'm in the middle of uh, taking the boat out of the water to store it for the winter. First time with uh, the new lunacy that it hasn't, um, first winter it will spend out of the water because with the pandemic, my normal MO the last many winters has been to take the boat either to down to the Southeastern United States or down to the Caribbean and leave it somewhere and go back and forth between it with the right. family or on my own. In a normal world, I would have taken the boat to the Caribbean this year. Mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't seem like I'm going to be able to can't rely on getting to and from the boat and you don't know what's going to happen. And the islands are mostly saying they're going to be open, but that could easily change. It seems kind of obvious. We have another wave coming at us. Right. So I'm taking the boat out of the water and getting a bunch of stuff done to it. That should be done anyway. Well, that's good. It is. It's, it's close There's to no you. immediate so. plans. Do you have big plans for the website just to keep, there seems to be a real spirited dialogue and, Thankfully, people don't stray from the topic. Uh, when you get a nice discourse going about it, something you posted, there's a lot of good information there for anyone who's new to the sport. Is that something you intend to build on? You know, actually, I've been I've been working really hard on this um, on my current book project, and have uh, frankly been kind of neglecting the website, having mm. much energy into it, and focusing more on the book. As if if you look, you know, I posted very frequently early on it's been up for a long time now i realized yeah um <laughs> Wait, i'm sorry what was the current book that you're working on again uh the, the current book i'm working on is, is fascinating you know my first book was basically a reference book the modern cruising sail book which unfortunately came out not too long before international marine went away uh, my second book was basically just a memoir mixed up some ocean sailing memoir mixed up with some practical advice in a hopefully somewhat literary manner. And uh, this third book is a um, nonfiction biography of a young man named Thomas Tongvald, who was the son of Peter Tongvald, who was well-known blue water sailor, who was a major figure to the generation before me, before us. Mm -hmm. Lynn and Larry Party were inspired by Peter Tongvald, who was 
bare bones, sailed, sailed a boat he built himself, wooden boat he built himself, no technology on it whatsoever. Wow. Um, no engine, no electronics, it didn't, you know, no toilet, he used a bucket, it was like <laughs> dirt simple. And his son, his son was raised on this boat, was born on this boat in the middle of the Indian Ocean um, and endured a great deal of tragedy growing up on the boat. Mm -hmm. um, his mother was shot by pirates. And this, this story is, and the story of Peter Tongval's life is told in his autobiography, um, At Any Cost, which was published in the early 90s and which I read a couple of times, which was just when I was getting really interested in blue water sailing. So I read the book a couple of times. Um, and, he, and Peter Tonkwald tells the tragic story of his you know, wife. He had one wife murdered by pirates south of the Philippines, lost another wife overboard, and was himself killed in a shipwreck on Bonaire in 1991. Oh, wow. And his son Thomas was the sole survivor of that shipwreck. His father and his half-sister were killed. He was sent to um, Andorra, this tiny little nation between France and Spain and the Pyrenees Mountains. And it's like the Switzerland of the Pyrenees. Um, and raised by an old sailing buddy of his father's, Edward Alcard, who just died, I think, last year mm -hmm. or the year before. And was, was a genius was you know, bona fide genius, interested in mathematics and boat design. Uh, he got into Cambridge University in, in the UK on the basis of a one hour interview mm -hmm. without ever filing a formal application. Um, couldn't bring himself to go to Cambridge University because of all the keep off the sign, keep off the grass signs they have there and instead went to Leeds, graduated from Leeds with a degree in advanced mathematics and fluid dynamics. Wow. And then ultimately went back to ocean sailing. And long story short, so everyone, no one, no one will feel like they don't have to buy the book. Um, went missing at sea himself. Went missing at sea himself six years ago at age thirty-seven. Oh my God! Um, it's a really amazing story, and I'm hoping it will appeal to people other than sailors. Sure. Yeah. And yeah. when do you expect that to be released, or you just? Um, I am still writing the book. I'm most of the way through writing it. I have an agent who's trying to pitch it to publishers and so far has had no success. Hmm. You know, pitch it to, you know, general, you know, publishers who publish general interest books as opposed to just international or marine. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Nautical publishers. Um, so crossing my fingers, something comes to that, you know, the pandemic is kind of messed up selling and marketing books and, as Black Lives Matter, publishers are more actively looking for, you know, um, books concerned with um, with race as opposed to sailing. Th those are the titles they're, they're favoring right now mm. on racial injustice and racial relationships between and racial politics, et cetera. None of which I have any quarrel with. Right. I want to get my book out there too. Yeah. So they they obviously have limited resources, so they're they're focused. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. The book. The um, unfortunately, I came too late. There was a guy named Eric Swenson, who was who was editor in chief at Norton, mm -hmm. and was a very active sailor. 
and was strongly biased in favor of sailing titles. And so for a long time, it was if you had a good sailing manuscript, it was relatively easy to get published at Norton. Um, all Don Street's books were published at Norton originally. Mm -hmm. You know, the Ocean Sailing Yacht, Volumes 1 and 2, and there were um, the parties, Linden Party, their early books were published by Norton, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, we just lost him, didn't we? Yeah, we did. Yeah. We did. Yeah, that was, uh, and also Patrick Childress. Patrick Childress, an old Newport guy. Mm. Uh, it's been a bad year for losing people. Your website, just so folks can learn more and, and some of, get some of these links, is wavetrain.net. W-A-V-E-T-R-A-I-N. Yeah. Yeah, I encourage people to visit my blog, wavetrain.net. And uh, encourage people to buy my books. Keep an eye out for the next one. It's going to be a great read. And I will that be available on Amazon or directly? Well, yeah, you don't know, I suppose. Available on Amazon. Yeah, mm. Everything's available on Amazon. Yeah. I still try and support the local bookstores, so. though. Yeah. Oh, I, I, prefer, I prefer to read a book, a physical book. I got lost. I got lost in the novelty of reading books on an iPad, you know, reading electric books. Um, when that first started, and, and then I realized I just prefer to hold a book in my hand. Um, yeah. But I still, it's, it's great if you're, if you're going on a long passage, mm -hmm. to be able to take like 20 books with you without like actually having to carry them all. Right. Is yeah. like fantastic, fantastic thing. Any kind of traveling really. To have a little library that, you know, it's the size of an iPad. I read one book on a, on a Amazon Fire tablet thing. It was uh, Warren, Warren Miller's autobiography, the, uh, the ski filmmaker. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I, I, it, it was a gift and, and it came with one download for books and I was headed to Breckenridge to go snowboarding. So I downloaded that book and I... It, it was all right, but like you said, I, I prefer a physical book as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, thanks again. I appreciate you taking the time and hooking up this morning. And Okay. Uh, I appreciate having the chance to talk to you. And uh, as a thank you, uh, if you give me the specs on the Loracus harness, I'll send you one. <laughs> I'll dig one out that fits your, your need, and I'll just ship it to you. Okay. I'll measure and I won't put myself. the real value on the package either. <laughs> In case the uh, New Hampshire authorities want to shake you down. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Okay. Well, thanks very much. I appreciate yep. it. Have a great day. Thanks. Okay. Take care, Chris. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Standing Before the Mass podcast with Chris Heaton, sponsored by Newport Nautical Supply. Please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.